Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are glad you are with us for this show. We've got a lot of information to go over. We also have two guests on today's show. We have Dr. Chris Keel, who's been with us before. He is a, uh, a senior a senior correspondent with us on a number of topics. And we're going to be talking with an organization called Factory Fix, which is the Uber experience for employees. We'll get to our guests in just a minute. I want to remind you of last week's show where we were talking to the, uh, what we call the dot .orgs, the nonprofit organizations that serve the industry. We spoke with Jim Warren from uh, FMA, the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International, which happens to be where we met Dr. Chris Peel, about his event in New Orleans on March 8 through March 10. You can find out more about that at fmanet.org. We spoke with ML Peck about the ISM's event in Orlando, Florida, from May 21 to 24. That's at the Institute for Supply Management.org. And we spoke with John Kennedy about the state of the state of manufacturing in New Jersey, their event March 29 through the 31st, njmep.org is where you can get more information on that. Next week's show, we're going to be speaking with Voodoo Manufacturing. They're at voodoomfg.com. Jim Allen is the director of manufacturing, and Max Freifeld is CEO and co-founder. To discuss their 3D printing factory in Brooklyn, New York, that is capable of producing end-use parts up to 10000 or more at comparable cost to plastic injection molding, which is really quite an interesting development. I also want to give you an update now on our new segment on the Export-Import Bank, commonly known as the XM Bank. If any listeners, especially manufacturers, are unfamiliar with the XM Bank, we encourage you to go to exim.gov for more information on how you can fund your export efforts. Now, here's an update on the XM Bank. In December of 2016, Chairman Richard Shelby of of Alabama was in his sixth and final year as chair of the United States Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. His term ended at the conclusion of 2016 after the bank was reauthorized in December of 2015 through September of 2019, neither Senator Shelby nor the Banking Committee put forth the necessary nominees for the XM Bank to form a quorum, which would have allowed it to extend loans greater than their current $10 million cap. This effectively has locked out large corporations like Boeing, GE, and other multinationals from bidding on major projects overseas where the backing of a government lending institution was and continues to be a requirement of many overseas project bids. As a result, U.S. corporations were knocked out of the bidding process and contracts were awarded to overseas competitors unless a U.S. multinational bid on the contract through an overseas subsidiary using an overseas government banking agency to fulfill the government loan guarantee requirement. However, if the subsidiary won that bid, it would entail that jobs created 
on a winning bid be domiciled in the country of the government bank that backed the loan. The end result was that the overseas projects didn't stop, and the jobs which would have been here in the U.S. were created instead in other countries. Manufacturing Talk Radio was unable to get any spokesperson from Senator Shelby's office or the banking committee to explain how this could possibly make sense for the U.S., other than the Republicans' consensus that the XM Bank shouldn't exist at all or have to be involved in these multinational transactions because multinationals are big enough to conduct business without the help of the XM Bank, even though dozens of developed countries have helped home-based corporations win bids in exactly this way because country-to-country bids often require government loan guarantees. In essence, major infrastructure projects well above $10 million being built for an overseas country, such as a nuclear power plant in France, want another government partly on the hook for part of the funding and cash flow to ensure that the project will be completed by its contractors. With the beginning of the 115th Congress, U.S. Senator Mike Crapo, Republican from Idaho, will now take over as chairman of the United States Senate Banking Committee on and Housing and Urban Affairs. At present, we do not know Chairman Crapo's current view on the XM Bank, although Senator Crapo has, three times in four years, voted against the bank's reauthorization, congressional voting records show, which is not a good omen for a fully functioning, for now the bank can only approve transactions below $10 million for small and mid-sized businesses or large multinationals working on what would be a small project for them. So here's the upshot of where the XM Bank is today. Still unable to make a loan over $10 million to any U.S. company without a quorum that it does not have and may not get. Large U.S. corporations are still locked out of overseas bids where government loan guarantees are a requirement of the request for proposal bidding process unless they do so through one of their overseas subsidiaries where jobs will be created offshore. Whether or not the multinational is large enough to fund the transaction through its own lending resources is irrelevant to the fact that their bid requires government loan guarantees, and the proposal will be rejected if that requirement isn't fulfilled. The current administration has to appoint a new XM Bank chairman and new board members, which then have to be approved by the Republican majority Senate, which, unless the Senate and the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Development has changed its worldview, does not bode well for the XM Bank. If any of this information is not accurate, Manufacturing Talk Radio would be glad to discuss the facts of the matter and air a segment with a senior administration official, Chairman Mike Crapo, or an executive from the XM Bank. But as of now, that is our update on the Export-Import Bank. Now let me get to our guest, Dr. Chris Keel from Armada Corporate Intelligence, discussing the Credit Managers Index and the state of the economy. Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Well, I always enjoy having you on, particularly when you have a nice, rosy Credit Managers Index report. Yes, yes. It's always it's always more fun to talk about the CMI when it's pointing in the right direction. <laughs> right. So what's happening with the credit managers index? They're obviously not tearing your hair out at the moment. 
Yeah, it, it's been very nice. We had, as you remember from the last show, we had a very good month uh, the previous month and reversed a lot of kind of mediocre months. So we were really excited waiting for this month to say, okay, this is either going to be an anomaly and we had a good month followed by a mediocrity or maybe we're starting a trend. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, even though the numbers were a little bit lower than they were the month before, we're still in trend territory. We're still seeing kind of the same pattern that we had seen the previous month, that the favorable factors were getting even more favorable, still some struggles in what we refer to as the unfavorable factors. And the difference between these two is favorables are things like sales and applications for credit and amount of credit extended and dollar collections, kind of the positive part of a credit manager's world. The unfavorables are things like accounts out for collection and disputes and bankruptcies and rejections of credit. There is still evidence that there's struggle in in some sectors, that companies are, are having a rough time. In our latest survey, most of that damage was on the service side particularly retail, uh, manufacturers were faring much better and their numbers were, were consistently higher than what you saw on the service side. Good, good. I was going to ask how the manufacturing sector is doing, and it appears that it's uh, gaining a little bit of steam at the moment, uh, largely I'm guessing because the uh, throes of the election are over, everybody at least knows who's in office, uh, the guesses are wild as to what that's going to mean, but manufacturing seems to be moving strongly into positive territory. Uh, I'm hoping that that's what the credit manager's index is also indicating. Yeah, it has been. And when we look at, at some of the trends that were starting, even pretty deep into 2016, they were things that were going to be favorable for manufacturers. We were seeing a little bit of activity when it comes to the dollar. You know, the dollar is still strong but it's not getting you know, stronger by the day as it had been. Uh, we have seen exports pick up just a little. Again, not as much as we would like them to be. There's an awful lot of uh, barriers and headwinds to fight through. But you looked at a kind of a return to pretty heavy car buying. Car manufacturing has been responding well. Uh, the agribusiness sector, not in a good place right now, just worrying about what the, the year is going to turn into. But you've seen some investment in farm machinery, aerospace has been doing okay, medical manufacturing doing okay. None of the data is suggesting, you know, time to dance in the streets, but it's it's consistent. Mm-hmm. You're seeing capital spending increase, you know, things that are just encouraging in at least the short to midterm. Well, that's always good news. Chris, uh, the European Union and the uh, uh, Brexit event, uh, one of the things that I'm reading now is that that's causing some uncertainty in Europe. And as we know, manufacturers do not like uncertainty. How is manufacturing doing in Europe? Well, it's a little bit of a mixed bag because, you know, after Brexit was passed, you sort of had this period where no one quite knew when it was going to actually start up. And now that you've got a plan in place and Britain is going to declare Article 50 and all of that process begins in really just a few weeks, now people have a sense of what it's actually going to look like. 
the big question now is that you're getting all kinds of new references to the Frexit and the Grexit and the Nexit, all these other countries that are now starting to think about pulling out of EDU. And much of that's going to depend on how elections go uh, in countries like France and, and the Netherlands and, and elsewhere. So there's a certain amount of, of trepidation, which has been balanced a little by the fact that the euro has been low. And so the manufacturers are worried about what happens with these things. But on the other hand, they're looking at being able to sell their goods at a discounted price just because the euro has fallen. So it's a little bit of a little good news here, a little bad news there, and and hoping for the best. Right. If um, the uh, European Union begins to splinter, does the euro do a nosedive against, for instance, the dollar? Yeah, it probably would because the implication is that you have, when Britain pulled out, they weren't a member and have never been a member of the Eurozone. So they have never used the Euro. So there was no implication that that was going to change. They have been committed to the pound from the very beginning. If France pulls out, if the Netherlands pulls out, if Greece pulls out, they're all Euro users. Uh, They don't have a local currency. But as soon as they pull out, they'll have to resurrect it. So suddenly the French franc would be back and the Dutch guilder would be back. That's a much bigger decision, um, much less likely that these countries are going to want to go that route. Uh, but even the threat of it makes the euro somewhat weaker. I mean, the one that scares everybody to death is what happens if the French decide to pull a Frexit. I mean, right now, the vast majority of the French don't want this, but if they somehow put Marie Le Pen in power as president, she stated that she wants out of Europe within six months of her election. Hmm. Well, that would make a manufacturing mess in Europe, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, it would. Um, it would be among other messes in Europe. Uh, the good news <laughs> is that she probably does not have the votes to win. Um, she'll likely be a contender uh, in in that French two round election, but you know, just looking at what's happening with French politics right now, I don't think that she has enough votes to win. Um, however, <laughs> she'll she'll certainly be a factor, and whoever comes to power in France is going to be discussing what all of this means to them. I mean, what it comes down to for the French is that they want a little less attention to what the Germans are interested in, a little more attention to what they're interested in. Right. Now let's uh, flip over to the other side of the world in China manufacturing. Uh, I Mm -hmm. know that the U.S. for quite a while in early 2016 was awfully concerned about the decline in China activity. I think that that's kind of ameliorated itself and smoothed out. Is manufacturing in China still focused on domestic? Or are they going to try to you know, battle through with exports, or where are they headed? Well, they're still trying to make that transition. They still want to be that kind of country that is less dependent on exports, more oriented towards um, having control of their economy in some respect. But it's a very slow process, and and they can't really afford to give up that export income, so they're not going to. They're going to continue to be a real challenge for global manufacturers on the low end, particularly consumer goods. They're beginning to get somewhat more competitive at the upper end, but many of those products are selling locally. Uh, It's not that they're trying to develop 
aircraft that will compete with Boeing and Airbus in Europe and the United States, they are trying to develop their own aircraft to sell locally so that China is not entirely dependent on Boeing and Airbus for intra-China flights. That's right. still probably years away, but that's that's where they like to go with everything. You know, it's giving people a domestic option. And is that going to keep their GDP in the, uh, oh, six, seven, maybe eight range for the foreseeable future? Yeah, eight I think would be a real stretch. Um, I think we're looking at, at six to 6.5, 6.8. Getting up to seven would be, wow, boy, we've accomplished something. Getting up to eight is, is really almost a pipe dream at this point. Ah, okay. Well, with the new administration in power here in the U.S., I know that we had a very cheap year in 2016 for gross domestic product growth. Mm-hmm. What's it look like going into 2017 for manufacturing and the rest of the economy? Well, I think we're looking at a kind of returning to a, a more familiar pattern. We had a fairly up and down 2016. We had some very mediocre months, but we ended up with a 3.5% third quarter, which was pretty impressive. We immediately fell back down to 1.9% right. in, in, in the fourth quarter. But almost all of that was an export decline. Everything else in the economy was still humming. We just didn't sell as much overseas, and we can blame most of that on the dollar. Going into mm-hmm. 2017, I think we're looking at 2 to 25 2.6. I mean, I know in the Trump campaign, a lot of conversation about we're going to grow at 4%, we're going to grow at 5%. That is nearly impossible without really goosing exports and it's very difficult to do without a really engaged consumer and the consumer has started to come around i mean we're seeing we had decent holiday season but we're not looking at you know the 2006 2007 consumer you know it's a we're more cautious you know we're saving a bit more so i think realistically if we can get close to three percent that would be a really good year and looking at 4 and 5%, yeah, dream on. Yeah, I would guess it's kind of like we're going to create 4 to 5 million jobs in manufacturing, which would get us back to 17 million that we haven't seen since 1980. Uh, yeah, I don't and part see of that the now. And, and the frustration with the whole conversation about manufacturing jobs is, a consistent lack of understanding that there are millions of available jobs now. We just don't have people to fill them. And, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the campaign, every time I hear about somebody talking about creating jobs, it's like, would you stop with this already? You know, we have eight or nine million jobs we need to be filled. I mean, there's plenty of opportunity if people have the right training. It's just, quit whining about creating new jobs and start training people to take the jobs we have. And, and that's a much more complicated process and it takes longer and it's, you know, I understand all of that, but you know, this kind of pat, gee, I'm going to create a job. No, you're not, you know, and, and (laughs) right now, if you, if you created a job that was commensurate with 2017 economics, well, you wouldn't have anybody to fill that one either. <laughs> so right. it's like I'm going to create a job for which there are no people. No, that doesn't really help. Right, right. So some of the uh, things that 
President Trump has decided that he will pass uh, getting rid of Obamacare or replacing Obamacare with something else, reducing regulations, which we all hope he does on manufacturing. Um, we're certainly hoping that that's all going to have a positive impact. I know it's been a real drag on manufacturing supply. Mm-hmm. They don't know which end is up when it comes to regulation. Where did that occur? Yeah, and I think one of the challenges with regulation is that it takes a while to kind of figure out the impact. There are two kinds of regulations. Most people like the first kind, which is really just setting the rules, you know, like bolts need to be this size and rail gauges need to be this size. It's a way for people to know what the rules are. Many of the regulations are really good at eliminating the fly-by-nights that nobody wants to compete with. The challenge regulations are the ones that are punitive, you know, that you've had something bad happen and you want to make sure it never happens again. So you just, you come up with some really extraneous regulations that really were never needed. You know, it was more, I used to equate it to the company that suddenly has a dress code policy because Bob showed up to work in a pink tutu and it's like, you know, you really just need to take Bob aside and say, are we having some issues? <laughs> instead of <laughs> right. instead of having a dress code committee that suddenly makes everything that everybody wears illegal. You know, it's just, just you know, we had a bank that behaved badly. Close the thing. You know, shut it down. Let somebody else buy it. You don't have to regulate the happy state bank in Amarillo out of existence. So. Yes, very true. Some of the uh, EPA regulations, I guess, we're going to see some rollbacks on. And um, I guess the Trump administration is saying if you pass a new one, you got to take two out of play. Is right. that likely to happen? It probably won't happen quite that way. I mean, it's a little bit hyperbole at this point. But I think what you do have is during the Obama administration, there was frustration that you could not get the movement that they wanted out of Congress. So rather than go through the congressional process, they were doing it through the regulatory executive process. And I think the desire now is to say this is overreach and they're taking decisions that are supposed to be made by a legislature. So a lot of it's going to be pushing it back into Congress, pushing it back to the states going, yeah, we're not going to try to do this by edict anymore. If if this like, for example, the water quality thing, you know, some states have a much different position on this because they're agricultural states and runoff is just kind of a way of life much different than for example you know states maybe in the new england area or or the northwest where it's it's a different kind of, of environment different kinds of agriculture in the past we kind of let the state legislatures make some of those calls and i think that may start becoming the the norm again right uh, Chris, on the subject of tax reform, which we have heard about for so many years, what is manufacturing looking for in the area of tax reform? Well, what I've heard speaking with a lot of manufacturers is is kind of two different directions. One, they want tax breaks to do certain things. For example, if they're going to train workers themselves and run the risk of losing that worker just as soon as they get the training and get a better offer someplace, well, they want a tax break for doing the training in the first place. So even if they lose the guy, they're going to get something out of the action. So there's Mm -hmm. desires to be rewarded, you know, tax breaks for buying capital equipment, tax breaks for 
entering new markets, things of that nature. On the other side of the coin, they want a, a more understandable tax system in terms of what is and is not taxed and at what level, because there's a lot of interpretation that goes on income taxing, corporate taxing is always a challenge because it's essentially a disincentive to make money. The more money you make and the companies are smart. I mean, they look at this and say, well, if I make this much money, I'll be in a different bracket and I'll lose almost everything I've made in additional taxes. So I'm just not, I'm just not going to make that much money. And well, now you put a break on your own business's potential for growth. So I think there's, a desire to change that kind of fundamental approach to say, look, you know, I don't mind paying taxes. I get that part. Do you have to make it punitive? Do you have to make it a disincentive to grow? Right. You know, infrastructure was talked about a lot during the election uh, cycle as well, and we were all happy to hear that we want to fix our crumbling roads and bridges. Um, I guess we're all hoping that is going to happen, but, Chris, is it realistic? You know, some of it is. The big issue is always money. Uh, We're talking a trillion dollars just to do repair work, and that's a lot of money. And, you know, it's obviously not going to be found in the current budget. It's going to have to come from something else. Revenue, I don't think, is an option. Uh, People are not going to want to increase taxes. There's talk about getting the private sector involved. But the rub with private sector engagement is they're only interested and stuff that has a fee connected. There's got to be a cash flow. And so toll roads and toll bridges and airport fees and seaport fees, that all appeals to a private investor. Fixing the local interstate, not unless it's a toll road, um, they're not going to (laughs) be engaged. So, you know, the, the good news is they'll put money into it. The bad news is you'll start paying tolls to drive on it. Right, right. Well, I've been across Interstate 80 as I go through uh, Ohio and and paid the tolls, so uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's not it's not horrible. I know a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of people do, and and it's pretty automatic. You know, people in certain parts of the country are like, "What's the big deal? We have toll roads all over the place." But if you're in a place that's not used to them, it's like, "By God, this is, you know, this is horrible." And it's like, "Well, you know, then get used to potholes." And then when we start looking at infrastructure more broadly, uh, one of the most significant changes that could be made is expanding rural broadband because a lot of the innovations in agriculture are dependent on being able to use satellite imagery and computers and uploading that. Well, you know, Texas alone is 93% deficient when it comes to rural broadband. And that's going to have to be something taken on as an infrastructure project, too. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't realize there were that many uh, dead zones in Texas. Oh, it's it's terrible. I mean, it's, you know, you can get cell phone coverage, but you don't have the speed that you need to upload and download. I mean, it's just all the new farm equipment is, is just state-of-the-art and connects to everything in sight, assuming that you're farming in downtown Chicago. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Chris and the last issue uh, for today's show the immigration and I'm not so concerned about the immigration as it's being called a ban but you know in the grand scheme of things uh, we are a country of immigrants and have been Mm -hmm. uh, much to the dismay of the Native Americans 
for the right. last 200, 300 years or so. Uh, where is this uh, immigration issue going? Well, one of the things I think we're starting to understand strategically is that the Trump approach is to go as far out as you can and then start backing off. And it's kind of like, here's my position, and then you start adjusting it. So, you know, day one, there was a massive ban. Within 24 hours, okay, green card people can come in. And then a few hours later, okay, if you have dual pass, you know, don't worry about it. Oh, if you're, it's like you kind of hit as far out as you can and then start retreating where there's, where there's pressure. And I think at the mm-hmm. end of the day, you'll have a system that is attempting to target those that are potential threats. On the other hand, the national security people point out that virtually every threat we've faced in the last 15 years has either been a domestic terrorist, somebody who's born here, has American citizenship, or it's come from a country that's not on that list. I mean, you know, 9-11 was not carried out by anybody from those seven countries. They were Saudis. And you right. know, we're not about to cut the Saudis off because we kind of like oil. Um, that's the same <laughs> token, you know, we're, we're looking at the same sort of thing with the import tax where, you know, it looks like a blanket 20%. Well, you know, we've done this before. Nixon had one in the seventies and you start off with this big tax and then you say, well, okay, we're going to exempt avocados. Okay. Well, tomatoes too. Okay. Well, we won't do it. And you'll eventually get down to a half dozen industries that you really wanted to target, but it looks like you're that you made the gesture and then backed off in in a reasonable way because people wanted their guacamole. So. Right. Well, I hope these things come to pass for manufacturing. It would certainly help maybe move the, uh, the GDP number north if we can start backing off on some of these things. Chris, we appreciate you being on the show every time you join us. Thank you. Very insightful information. You've got such a broad, vast knowledge of things. We greatly appreciate it. You're so welcome. I look for the next time. See you soon. Great. Thanks, Chris. And uh, that was Chris Keel, who is with Armada Corporate Intelligence. He's also the economist for the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International, which is where we met Chris at one of their shows called Fabtech. Uh, we think Chris is fabulous, so we enjoy having him on the show. Uh, stay tuned for uh, our second segment. We're going to be talking with Patrick O'Reilly, CEO and founder of Factory Fix. They can be found at factoryfix.com, the Uber of the solution for factory workers. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Elevate your career and stay ahead of the curve with EISM. Brought to you by the Institute for Supply Management. EISM is the first on-the-go lifestyle-compatible learning initiative in the industry. It features hyper-short 15-minute modules and guided learning courses that can be completed in as few as three weeks. Just right for you or your team. It's the world's largest one-stop online learning shop for supply management. Register today at ismelearning.org. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800 
800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are speaking with Patrick O'Reilly, who happens to be the CEO of a fascinating company called Factory Fix. And Patrick, I'm going to have you explain Factory Fix. Lou and I are fascinated with what you're doing, but you're going to be far better explaining to our listeners what Factory Fix is and does. Please share. Sure. Uh, So Factory Fix is a website and mobile app that allows manufacturing companies to hire experienced, skilled labor professionals on demand. So what we're doing is we're bringing a uh, Uber-like experience. Everyone knows Uber, the famous um, taxi uh, ride-sharing app. But we're bringing an Uber-like experience uh, for manufacturing companies so that they can bring in experienced, skilled labor guys uh, with the click of a button. So uh, this is mostly to manage busy times, uh, manage skills gaps, or whenever they get overwhelmed with projects. Great idea. How, how does uh, how does your uh, client uh, know uh, the credentials or the quality of the employee that he is uh, renting? Um, you know, based on uh, the information that you have. So that's a good question. Uh, when a customer sends out a new request, our software will automatically send that request. Uh, via email and text message to all the local pros in that area that are qualified for the job. And uh, from their standpoint, they get a a project opportunity, and then they immediately click whether or not they're interested in the job. And so after a certain amount of time, we'll send a quote to the customer that, that did that request. And it will show the hourly rate, and it will show all the people in their area that are interested in the job. And each of them has a profile with a, a little description of their experience and skills and stuff like that. So that's kind of how it works. Are, are most of your uh, um, technicians and uh, skilled uh, uh, labor folks, are these uh, – the people have been doing work for a long time. Are they retirees? Or are they out of work people? Or you know, what's the what's their present condition? Yeah. So our our goal was to build uh, a network of experienced professionals, uh, people that can kind of jump in and hit the ground running. Um, everyone in our network has at least five years of relevant experience. Um, so we tend to get a lot of like uh, semi-retired guys that uh, don't want to do the full-time thing anymore, and uh, they love our platform because they just get opportunities for for part-time gigs, and uh, there's no obligation to to take them. Um, they simply review each one and then uh, can click interested, uh, kind of at their leisure. So. So you are working in what is uh, uh, known and cropping up all over America as the gig economy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, every, everyone knows about the manufacturing skills gap, how there's, uh, you know, 2 million skilled jobs that are going to go unfilled here over the next 10 years. And um, there's 
you know, to be honest, there's no solution for it. Um, you know, it, it gets written about, and, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, this is going to happen, so brace for it. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, so uh, our, our take on it is that uh, we think these companies are actually going to have to borrow employees from each other, you know, and, and more and more skilled labor guys, they're going to be in such demand that they don't need your standard nine to five job, you know, they can kind of take gigs uh, based on their availability and based on the pay rate and just kind of uh, jump from company to company. That's a it really, it's a, it's a terrific idea that, you, that you've uh, stolen from uh, Uber. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the fact that you're doing this uh, right now, you're doing it in uh, the Midwest primarily. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We wanted to start in the Midwest, uh, the Rust Belt, and really uh, make sure everything's uh, in gear, make sure our software is working well, and um, and then we'll be expanding rapidly. So... As of only very recently, it seems as though the economy and the manufacturing economy seems to be uh, turning and improving. Um, and I, I would think that you're probably a pretty good leading indicator in that regard. Have you seen a upturn in the demand for uh, labor, even though we know there's a big skills gap hole? Uh, have you seen more and more people taking advantage of your service? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say there's two big indicators for us as uh, as far as the manufacturing industry doing well. Um, the first is we see a lot of requests for uh, second shifts. Uh, so ah. companies, companies that, uh, you know, haven't run a second shift before, uh, they want to do it. And uh, we have a lot of people that that have a full-time job and just want to earn extra money. So they they'll think, you know, what the heck? I'll work a second shift for a while. Um, and then the uh, the second indicator we're seeing is uh, more and more uh, automation equipment being purchased by uh, by companies, especially like the medium and smaller size manufacturers. Uh, they're investing in automation, and they need uh, people from our network to come program it or, or set it up or whatever. Patrick, I just want you to take a moment to go over the uh, network of skills, skilled people that you have uh, because you break them down into four categories on your website, and we'll have you give your website address. And then within each of those categories, the type of skill sets that you can supply to uh, to companies in need. If you just take a minute and go through that, that would be great information. Yeah, absolutely. So, like you said, we have four major categories, uh, and those are engineering, uh, maintenance professionals, uh, electrical contractors, and then machinists and fabricators. Um, so under the engineering category, we include uh, stuff like uh, factory automation and industrial robotics, as well as mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. 
Um, <clears throat> as far as the, the maintenance category, we also include stuff like machine repair technicians, uh, hydraulic technicians, and millwrights. And then for, for electrical, we have uh, industrial electricians, and then even uh, uh, panel builders. Uh, and then finally, for machinists and fabricators, we include uh, CNC machinists, uh, welders, um, and uh, uh, anything else that, you know, hey, machine operators, in a sense. So right. uh, those, are, those are the uh, major categories we focus on. And for the listener who now says to himself or herself, hey, this sounds pretty cool. I'd, I'd like to work gigs now and then. How do they sign up? So we actually uh, have them send in the resume, uh, and they can send it to info at factoryfix.com, or even email me directly at patrick at factoryfix.com. Um, but I have to warn you, I mean, we, we only take uh, less than 10% of the resumes we get. And, and we have to do that because, one, we're, we're managing supply and demand. We don't want a lot of people signed up that are just kind of sitting there and hanging out. And then the other reason is that we really need people that are able to just jump into to strange situations and hit the ground running for our customers. So we really want to take the best of the best. Ah, understood, understood. Yeah, I see uh, you have mill rights um, in your uh, maintenance pros. Is that a, uh, a woodworking operation, or explain to me a mill right? So the mill rights we have are are specialized in um, you know installing machinery, uh, moving machinery, even like repairing like CNC machinery. So. Got it. I know uh, there's different types of mill rights, but those are the ones we focus on. Okay, okay. Uh, Patrick, on uh, in situations where uh, somebody's you place them and they they're going to go to work for I don't know three four days five days whatever it is, uh, is, is there a limit or is there a maximum? Uh, what happens if? Uh, uh, your client, uh, your manufacturing client, uh, says, "Wow, this guy's really good. I want to hire him." Uh, what's the story on that? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and um, it's kind of what differentiates um, ourselves from staffing firms. Um, and you know, the thing is, most of the people in our network aren't really looking for a full-time job. Um, so, you know, that it has happened before where, you know, both sides have kind of liked each other so much that, um, that uh, you know, they, they just wanted to become a full-time employee. So um, we, we certainly don't stand in the way of that. Um, you know, if someone you know, wants to work a day and then become an employee, we have a, a little, you know, buyout clause. Um, but if someone's been working there for like, four or five months or so um, and wants to become an employee, uh, we just say, you know, go ahead because we know they'll come back to us for the next need. Very good. Very good. That's uh, that, that's uh, a neat uh, way to handle it. <clears throat> it's a neat way to handle it. Um, 
is naturally in the Midwest, the skills gap uh, issue is uh, is huge. Um, so when you said earlier that you take only one out of ten uh, resumes, are, are you effectively being flooded uh, with resumes? Um, I wouldn't say flooded. Uh, you know, we do have job postings up, uh, you know, across the internet uh, with manufacturing associations. Uh, so we definitely get a lot in. Um, it's just the point is we're we're pretty picky about who gets to join just because we have to know that um, they're going to do a good job, frankly, because they they represent us. Um, I mean, literally, uh, the customer or, or those people in our network are our product, you know. So if if we send a good person, the customer has a great experience. If we send someone that's that's not so good or in over their head, uh, well, the customer is going to blame us. So it's just the same as, as if you get a bad driver on Uber, you know. Uh, Patrick, did you have anything uh, further specific that you wanted to address in, in, in the form of getting your message out? Um, no, I mean, that's it's all been great so far. I think we've hit all the points. But you, you're looking for actually two types of clients. You're right. looking for you're looking for the job hunter, and you're looking for the uh, uh, the manufacturer. Is there a d- different way that each one of them approach you, or is it all through the same single uh, uh, format? Uh, you know, an email to you, or I mean, do you ask if they're a manufacturer? Do you ask them if they're uh, you know a machinist? I mean, how do you how yeah, do you they, determine? They all can reach us on our website. So I'll probably just send them all there, and then uh, I can share my email address as well. But, okay. yeah, it's all, it's all handled on our website. Uh, Patrick, if somebody – I know there's, there's two kinds of uh, uh, folks that you're dealing with. You're dealing with the manufacturer on the one hand, and you're dealing with the uh, skilled labor on the other hand. Um, how do you uh, collect these people? How do you make the connection – uh, explain a little of that to our audience. Uh, sure. So for customers, the easiest way to reach us is just to go to our website, which is factoryfix.com, uh, all one word, uh, spelled how you think it's spelled. Um, okay. Or, or, uh, or you can just reach me by email, which is patrick, uh, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, at factoryfix.com. And um, we definitely want more customers, and we definitely, definitely need more uh, professionals, um, especially you guys at home that are that are maybe uh, looking at retiring or, or don't want to do the full full time grind anymore. Uh, it's a great way to kind of ease into retirement. Patrick, what companies have come to you and hired labor? Can you share some of those with our listeners? Yeah, um, so our initial target for customers is kind of that medium-sized manufacturer. Um, and we always say, you know, anyone from 5 to $50 million in revenue um, is, is a, usually a great fit because those are the companies that have a lot going on and yet don't have the uh, – 
the huge uh, purchasing or procurement departments that tend to make things a little more complicated. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we certainly dealt with bigger companies. I mean, we have, we have companies like uh, Honeywell, uh, ITW, uh, B-Way Corporation, all, all pretty large manufacturers that, um, you know, they, they struggle with the same things as the medium-sized guys. So we're, we're helping them too. Have you run into a situation where, and Tim and I have run into this uh, throughout the country, where manufacturing companies are finding new and innovative ways to uh, train uh, uh, train students and others to uh, take up the manufacturing cause. And some, they one last week or two weeks ago. Uh, the company donated uh, $100,000 to a local high school, uh, which actually hired a former uh, machinist who uh, then became a teacher and started teaching kids in the high school how to do uh, CNC work and machining work and milling and, and so on. Um, and there are many, many different ways people have done it. There was another one uh Company five companies joined together and they all chipped in money and they started a, one company had a, a lot of extra space and they created their own internal school in in, in their um, uh, manufacturing facility and then the five of them uh, contributed and took advantage of as these kids came out of school they would you know hire them so have you run into uh, anything for example where you had a a machinist who uh, really didn't want to manufacture anymore, but he's got so much talent that you could offer his services out to be a training technician, to train young people in the company. And the cost to do so would be, you know, fairly minimal. Uh, So like I said, this was just a half-baked bubble idea that you might want to uh, take a look at and see if there's any uh, room for some some way for you to uh, make money at it and uh, help your clients as well. Well, that's a great idea, and uh, you know, please please keep thinking of this stuff because <laughs> it's what's going to take us to the next level. But uh, I'll give you th- I'll give you my address where to send my commission check. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great idea because we have a lot of these, like I said, semi-retired guys with all this wealth of knowledge. And <clears throat> under our model, they're essentially like their own one-person company. So I'd like, for, I'd like to use them in new and unique ways like that and essentially find, um, find different clients for, for different stuff uh, that they can that they can teach them. I mean, it's it's uh, it's just another way. I mean, uh, we started here by placing people as as workers, but I right. think as right. as we evolve, we're going to come up with new opportunities like that to uh, use their time. Well, we did hear uh, one of the other stories that we did run across uh, over a period of time was uh, when a uh, senior person was gave notice that hey boss I'm I'm leaving I'm retiring in 6 months or a year I just want to give you the benefit of a long time notice and the employer said well I'll tell you what 
you know, why don't you extend your time and instead of you retiring, uh, give me an extra six months, give me an extra year, and you work with a trainee and you teach that trainee. He's, he's just sticks to your hip and you teach him everything that you know. And uh, that's, that works out pretty well also. Uh, so here yeah. they get an ex- not only their salary, but they get an extra big, uh, you know, as, as a bonus to help train his, uh, basically his replacement. So you know, there's a, another thought, not mine. We've heard it being done around the country. Yeah, and, and we've actually had uh, a company come up to us saying that their, their maintenance technician was about to retire, and, uh, and they'd like to hire him back at a, at a part-time uh, uh, gig, but because of insurance issues and workman's comp issues, they couldn't do that. So they actually had him join our network and then was able to bring him in through us. So um, There's always yeah. a way around the barn. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's an interesting thought about that he couldn't work part-time uh, legally. I mean, that that sounds rather strange. Yeah, you know. On a, on a direct basis. Interesting. Yeah. So it worked out for everybody. That's right. Well, that's good, uh, Patrick. Obviously, Factory Fix is doing some creative things to help manufacturers uh, preserve uh, and extend the, the skills of those workers. I think that America is faced with uh, something it has not experienced in the past, and that is what has been known in other countries as a brain drain as these very experienced people who have years of knowledge go out of manufacturing without passing off the knowledge. And factory fix may just be a solution for that piece of the puzzle as well. We congratulate you for what you're doing, and we appreciate you being on Manufacturing Talk Radio to share that with our listeners. Thanks, Patrick. Oh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. And by the way, when you do go public, I would like to be notified beforehand. I want to buy the insider price. That's the big. That's the big rage nowadays, especially in uh, Washington. Uh, if you've been listening to the news recently, uh, so you, you're doing a fine job. And uh, if we could help you in the future, you know, please uh, stay close, listen to us, and contact us if you need uh, any of our input. Absolutely. I'm a big fan, and, and don't forget about me when you get a network TV show. You, you got it. You got it. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks, much, Patrick. Patrick. All right. Take see you guys. Good. Take care. Bye-bye. We've been talking with Patrick O'Reilly, who's CEO of Factory Fix. You can find that company at factoryfix.com. And check out what they do if you need skilled labor. Quick way to get it if you are a very uh, skilled technician, a great way to get into the gig economy and do some part-time work to make some extra money. Lou, fascinating company. Yeah, really. I I, I, I fell on them, and uh, I, I thought this was great. I thought this was great stuff. We might yeah. wa- may want to have to pedal it around the country and uh, give him places to open up in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll help him expand. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. 
You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.